Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is December 13th. It's a Wednesday. We're getting close to halfway through December, getting close to Christmas, to the new year, 2024. Good fucking God. I can't believe we're almost there. But all of that aside, happy Hanukkah to everyone. And yeah, just a lot going on in the news. First and foremost, the audio might be a little bit worse than usual today. I am not in my usual recording quasi-studio. I'm using um, a different mic as well. I'm using a headset mic instead of my usual table microphone, professional microphone. So might sound a little bit muffled today, but it's probably better than about a year ago when I was driving through the Midwest recording a podcast using the iPhone speakers. So it's probably better than that. So a cup half full, we'll go with it. So anyways, uh, there's a lot of depressing news. Today I had to do some kind of just monotonous tasks at work. So I like to put on the BBC in the background or sometimes CNN. And I like the BBC because I think it just offers a more nuanced and objective view to world events. And I mean... We'll we'll get into it later. Gaza is becoming, becoming just a, just just more of a humanitarian nightmare. We have massive torrential downfall downpour. Sorry, we have rising cases of disease, starvation. People are getting dehydrated, etc. The Israelis, the IDF, are starting to flood the tunnels with seawater. It's a mess. We also see looks of a genocide in, in Sudan. As I've, as I've talked about before, the Rapid Support Forces, which are basically just a rebranded version of the militant groups that com- committed the Darfur genocide about a decade ago, they are, again, committing atrocities against local groups. We are seeing we are seeing some culmination of an opposition to them. But as I've talked about, we have Wagner Forces, we have Russian money in there, we have the United States trying to get humanitarian aid in there. It is a shit show. And most reports are saying it's not only looking like a genocide again, but also starvation and disease are rampant there. Also, we have to look at Ukraine, of course. Vladimir Zelensky is again trying to woo foreign leaders to give more aid to Ukraine. Of course, the United States Congress is completely shut down on aid. Obviously, the Republicans want border funding, want to stop the border crisis. Democrats want to get money to Ukraine. I don't know why they can't just make a damn deal at this point, give the Republicans money for the border and give money to Ukraine. To me, it's not that complicated, but the Republican Party is completely becoming isolationist. J.D. Vance, again, kind of leading that charge in the Senate as well. And the sad news is, is it looks like we see a stalemate in Ukraine. Russia is, I don't want to say Russia's winning, but they are just more willing to commit atrocities. We also saw massive attacks in Kiev, where I think I saw about 50 people were injured at the time of this recording, including a lot of young children. And it looks like Vladimir Zelensky is losing support from the West, which is something I've talked about since the invasion back in 2022 in February. And we are seeing everything change, mainly because of economic reasons and the rise of right-wing populism. And so those are just a few (sighs) depressing events. We'll, We'll talk about Gaza in more detail in a little bit. But I did want to start with something light, <laughs> if we can call it light. I guess it's laugh about it so you don't cry about it type of thing. But as I'm recording this, Vivek Ramaswamy is doing a CNN town hall. No, I'm not watching it. No, I'm not going to cover it. You guys know pretty well by now my thoughts of Vivek. 
Personally, I think he is a dangerous, misogynistic, radical who doesn't ever know what he's talking about. He reminds me of that know-it-all kid in your AP history or AP world history class who reads a bunch of things and then just puts out word salads and interrupts the teacher and calls out students and sometimes is right, but he's just more of a contrarian than anything else. He is, well, he, he calls climate change a hoax. In a 20, I think it was 2022 book, he said that Trump did not win the election, but now he is the leader of the election conspiracies, saying that Democrats stole the election, all of that fun. He is also now the new face of the Great Replacement Theory, the idea that the Jews and, and the Democrats are basically trying to replace the white population with non-white migrants. He, during the debate last week, said that the Great Replacement Theory is not a conspiracy. It's the Democratic platform, which is just insane. And there's just a tragic irony that an Indian child of immigrants is leading the Great Replacement Theory, which is just a blatantly racist, dangerous theory, in my opinion. And, of course, this is a guy who has gone full QAnon as well, saying that January 6th was merely an inside job, saying that 9-11 was an inside job. He's dropping in the polls and so he's just going completely batshit. And this is also the guy who pretty much wants to do Neville Chamberlain's appeasement strategy. He seems to think that if we let Putin take parts of Ukraine, then we can basically intimidate China. He also is fine with pulling out of helping Taiwan after we've developed our own chip industry in the United States. This guy would create a destabilized world, I guess even more than right now. So anyways, not a good guy. Also just... His attacks on Nikki Haley, the only woman on stage last week, attacking her intelligence when she knows way more than him about this stuff. And anyways, the reason I bring him up, I could, <laughs> I can always rant about Vivek, but <laughs> this is actually kind of fun. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy if you catch my drift, but it does seem like we're seeing all the great replacement theory guys come together. You have Elon Musk, Alex Jones, and Vivek. I think Tucker Carlson was on a different one. Yeah, you have Elon Musk, Alex Jones, Andrew Tate, Matt Gates, and others. Part of an X conversation. The Guardian has a pretty good piece on this. <laughs> and I think this is a, there's a lot of things to learn from this little scandal. People are calling it P-gate or Urinegate. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I just... I, I love these type of stories about Vivek. But anyways, The Guardian writes here in quotes, Vivek Ramaswamy, a candidate for the Republican nominee for U.S. president in 2024, inspired accusations of taking the right-wing talking point about draining the swamp. Too literally. <laughs> when his microphone appeared to broadcast himself urinating during an X-space conversation with Elon Musk, Alex Jones, Andrew Tate, Matt Gates, and others. Before we continue, good God. That is the... If you want to talk about a basket of deplorables, it's bad when Elon Musk is definitely like the best guy in that list. Um, Alex Jones, Andrew Tate, Matt Gates, V. Vake. Like this is just the like America first populist right. Oh God. But anyways, so, so what happened is a little background. Elon Musk welcomed Alex Jones back onto the platform. Obviously, Alex Jones ruined the life lives of some of the parents of Sandy Hook victims conspiracy theorist, fraudster, I think rightfully taken off of Twitter, which was a private organization, not a public one. So the First Amendment is not controversial in this case. Again, it's a private organization. It can do what it wants. Anyways, Alex Jones is doing all these rounds now. He was on Tucker Carlson's show. He's, he's back on X. 
And basically Musk invited him and other far-right media figures and politicians, and they had a conversation. More than 100,000 listeners were on the conversation. According to the numbers The Guardian has and that X has, ultimately you had 2.3 million people tuned in. And so, (laughs) anyways, they are basically talking and... Ramaswamy was in the middle of describing how he's a super, he's super pro-human, and that means all humans. And then all of a sudden, I guess you hear the sound of trickling water. And then one of the participants says, Vivek, Vivek, that's your phone. I'm not able to mute you. And so it sounds like he kept his mic on and he had to go take a pee break. (laughs) This is the most COVID era scandal or non-scandal I can think of. I think there's a video here. Let's just play it really quick. Decide not to have children. That's all I'm saying. Elon Musk is promoting an optimistic pro-human <laughs> future. And and so in the background, you can just hear a little stream going. Science and evidence shows is real and that we need. Gentlemen, I have to yeah, go. Yeah, I, I just, just want to okay. be sort of, uh, yeah, exactly. I want to be clear about Please, my position. I'm, I'm super pro-human, and I mean all humans. Uh, you know, humans in America, humans in Somebody's Africa, got their thing Asia. open and everyone Somebody else. Put your phone open in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, Vivek. Vivek, that's, that's your phone, Vivek. I'm not able to mute you. Vivek. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead, Elon. Um. So there you have it. Apparently, Vivek, um, lesson to all of you guys. If you're in a Zoom meeting or in an X conversation with Alex Jones or whoever it may be, maybe put your thing on mute. Just saying. Anyways, I... The reason I bring this up is because these people are just not serious. Like, I'm just looking at some of the names in this Twitter conversation. Oh, God. Dave Smith, Jack Posliak, Elon Musk, Vivek, Alex Jones. I mean, these are pretty much all of the all of the people that have been either part of the Manosphere, white nationalism, or the Great Replacement Theory. And at the end of the day, they're just not serious human beings, but people take them so seriously. And that is troubling, troubling in a lot of ways. All right, well, let's get to real events and so I can give you some real commentary. Uh, I, I do recommend, just a side note, The Atlantic actually has a really good piece on how Vivek is the new face or spokesman for the Great Replacement Theory, and I think it's a must-read, so I can put a link in the podcast notes for that, but definitely check it out. So anyways, I want to talk about climate change for a minute and the international effort to try to at least quell some of its worst effects. And what I mean here is the UAE, mainly in Dubai, biggest city, impressive city in the UAE. And it hosted the COP28 summit. And, uh, I mean, where do we start here? It closed today. I think a lot of the pragmatists are saying that it marks potentially the end of fossil fuels, or at least the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era. If you, if you go on to the United Nations Climate Change Portal, its live blog, it gives us some interesting takes on it. It writes, COP28 closed today with an agreement that signals the beginning of the end of the fossil fuel era by laying the ground for a swift, just, and equitable transition. Sorry, I lost it there for a second. Underpinned by deep emission cuts and scaled-up finance. It also continues later. Whilst we didn't turn the page on the fossil fuel era in Dubai, This outcome is the beginning of the end, said the UN Climate Change Executive Secretary Simon Steele in his closing speech. Now all governments and businesses need to turn to these pledges into real economic outcomes without delay. Apparently, in a demonstration of global solidarity, 
there were about 200 parties involved, and the UN touts that they came together in Dubai with basically making the decision on the world's first global stock take to ratchet up climate action before the end of the decade. I have a lot of thoughts about this. <clears throat> I, I think a lot of these summits can be important for global solidarity, etc. But at the same time, I think a lot of these summits or giant meetings, they're good at virtue signaling. They're good at putting out a statement. But at the end of the day, these statements appease moderates, appease realists, but then at the same time kind of promise the fossil fuel industry that they're not going to do anything too quickly. And it also seems like a lot of countries that actually have a huge stake in the impacts of climate change, a lot like the South Pacific, Southeast Asia, they're usually not brought to the table or their voices aren't heard quite enough. And it seems like, yes, this was an important meeting, but the irony isn't lost on me. They're meeting in the UAE, which is a country, like Dubai doesn't exist without oil, right? It is so hot there that they've built these just massively beautiful buildings. Everything's done inside. The wealth that's generated there is pretty much all from oil. And then at the same time, you also have countries that have pretty much benefited off of the status quo of oil, making decisions for countries that have been ruined by it. So anyways, let's get to the specifics of it, and then I'll tell you why I'm not totally convinced. So basically the news is that the first, for the first time in about 30 years of the Conference of Parties, which is COP, right? The document did actually directly address fossil fuels. That is the positive. The Atlantic has a good article that talks about how the official text does actually call on, on the parties involved, the COP parties, to transition away from fossil fuels and energy systems. Now, I think it's a positive that you are seeing a grand recognition of getting away from fossil fuels. Now, of course, I would argue, I don't know totally what the infrastructure is to do so. But this is the first time that you have all members kind of at least agreeing to to face the elephant in the room, which is climate change and fossil fuels, right? I do want to read a passage from The Atlantic, though, that I think gets into why people are hesitant about this. It writes here in quotes, The deal still leaves significant allowances for fossil fuels to linger into the future and includes language recognizing the utility of transitional fuels. fuels sorry. This is code for natural gas and abatement, which is code for carbon capture and storage widely considered too expensive and unproven to be a meaningful solution. Now, Ben Rhodes and Tommy Vitor, uh, the, pod, the Pod Save the World guys, but also foreign policy experts, they, they mentioned this, I remember about a month ago in an interview I was watching where they were talking about how you are going to find these coded terms like transitional fuels, abatement, which people are like, what the hell are they even talking about here? But they are coded terms that sound good, but in reality, they are recognition that the status quo is remaining for the time being. Because, look, natural gas is better, but I still wouldn't really call it a transitional fuel. It's like, it's like if you want to quit smoking, but you're like, oh, I'm going to take up chewing tobacco, or I'm going to take up, you know, those nicotine pouches or something. It's like, yeah, you can say you're not smoking, but at the same time, you're still getting your fix from something. And you're not really recognizing the need to get off of the original substance, which is the nicotine addiction, right? And so, and also abatement from everything, and I am no expert on this, but from everything I've read about carbon capture and storage, 
it doesn't seem like something that you could really use around the world. It doesn't seem sustainable to me. And I don't know if it's a long-term solution. It sounds extremely expensive. And I don't know how you are able to do that in parts of the world where they are still dependent on fossil fuels and kind of asking us, why are you trying to get us off this when it's how we survive? It's how we maintain stability and it's how our economies boom. I mean, I think of places like Nigeria that are oil rich countries and they're like, oh, the West is telling us now to get off this and go to more expensive solutions. They've been doing this for centuries, you know? So it gets, it gets complex on that front. And I, I guess you could also say one of the other positives of this is that you do have a giant mass of partners, organizations, and countries that at least are involved in this process. And there will be substantial sway because of it. Of course, this is not legally binding, but ships, countries, momentum in general, it moves in the direction that the wind is blowing or that the momentum is pointing. And in this case, countries do move in the direction that they're focusing on. And it does seem like this, or the, you know, the conference of parties, COP, will nudge the world towards buying less oil, pumping less oil, maybe this decade, but probably further on. And I guess a lot of economists and climate activists that are skeptical of this do at least acknowledge that COP is probably outdated. It is not doing enough quick enough. It's not addressing the urgency of the scope of the climate crisis right now, but it is setting a new floor. And I'm trying to be cup half full this week, especially today. So maybe we can acknowledge that at least, that it is setting a new floor, a new basis for dialogue, and that is something. But now there is a lot of criticism over representation here. And what I mean is that it seems like this text was finalized by a majority of the COP partners. COP, sorry, COP members is a better way to put it. But this was before some representatives were actually there. And some of these representatives that were not able to be a part of this conversation, arrived later, and they were ones that actually were, were representing parts of the world that are being dramatically hit by climate change. What I mean here is that Samoa's Anne Rasmussen is a lead negotiator for basically 30, 39 small island states that are a powerful block at COP. And basically, <laughs> she arrived after... Al Jaber and other officials celebrated the impact of this agreement in Dubai. And so she took the floor enraged and said this in quotes, we are a little confused about what just happened. And again, basically they found consensus at this before this group of 39 small island states that are highly impacted by flooding, climate change, temperature rises, etc., had even been able to get involved. And Basically, Rasmussen, as well as Samoa's 39 small island groups that are all forming this coalition, their view was that the agreement was missing strong timelines for peaking emissions and had a lot of loopholes for fossil fuels. They also argued that it's only going to lead to incremental shifts, even though transformational change is necessary. And as you guys know, I'm more of an incrementalist generally than a transformationalist just because I think incrementalism is more likely to lead to positive effects while sometimes transformational changes can actually backfire or be not popular with mass swabs of the populations. I can do a whole rant about that. Maybe I will sometime. But in cases like this, incrementalism has failed. 
So I can understand that completely. But I think the big criticism here is that maybe some of this consensus was formed without listening to the representatives of some groups that are highly skeptical of this working. My other criticism here would be the obvious is that Paris 2015, that was, you know, the Paris climate agreement that Trump pulled us out of when he was elected to office. It was really the last notable, notable Notable. summit where you actually saw caps, plans, years, deadlines, things that you actually need to kind of allow countries to work together and set timelines. And we're just not seeing that right now. Now, probably if I had to say, this is something I would do if I was working in climate policy for the United Nations or one of these COP partners, I would say climate reparations. Look, and and for the skeptics, I have talked about how I'm hesitant and even against reparations in the United States for dealing with the ghosts of our past because I think too much time has passed. And it's really hard to now create that in society when you have wealth inequality, class inequality, as well as racial inequality. It's hard to look back to the times of slavery, which have been almost 200 years ago, and say, oh, we're going to we're going to pay reparations to fix that. I think it's just too late to really try to pinpoint that. But climate change is happening now, and we are seeing huge refugee crises, famines, everything under the sun. And, it, and it's going to lead to the displacement of hundreds of millions of people. And I always look back to what happened in Syria. I remember reading that back in the early days of the Syrian civil war, the U.S. Department of Defense basically identified climate change as a serious threat to national security. In a very brief summary, some of the rationale involved what happened when basically you saw climate change just exacerbate famines and it forced farmers to relocate to cities like Damascus, Aleppo, looking for work, right? Because your whole way of life is disrupted and you get desperate, so you go to cities. And then you saw some of these de- these displaced farmers become susceptible to recruiting, to radicalization by groups like ISIS. Desperation kicks in and you see the rise of terrorism, sectarianism, and just class division. And a lot of what we see in the world of unrest, you can really look at it through the lens of climate. And About a year ago, there was a really good foreign policy article, and it notes that over the next 30 years, the climate crisis will probably displace more than 140 million people within their own countries alone and many more beyond. It writes here in quotes, global warming doesn't respect lines on a map. It will drive massive waves of displacement across national borders, as it has in Guatemala and Africa's Sahel region in recent years. Basically, the article argues that A great climate migration is not only inevitable, but it's also happening already quickly, usually in countries that are quite poor or have that are mainly in the global south that have been impacted by colonization, the dark side of capitalism, whatever you want to say. And Foreign Policy magazine basically argues that to help this issue, international organizations, groups like the COP summit are going to need to find a new approach and a more different and creative way to deal with this because it's it's not just going to be bad for these countries. It's going to make the whole world worse. It's going to make the whole world less safe. And 
a lot of experts have discussed the idea of climate reparations, which sounds quite radical to some, but I think it might be the only option other than what the foreign policy article calls climate colonization, which in quotes would mean the survival of the wealthiest and devastation for the world's most vulnerable people. And I wish there were other options, but because as I've said, historically, I'm not a fan of reparations, but I think it kind of makes sense because basically you have the global North kind of able to survive a lot of this and it, it, it can be looked at at least through the lens of, you know, the history of slavery, colonialism, imperialism. It enriched a lot of countries in the global North. They were able to industrialize and a lot of this industrialization involved negatively impacting parts of the global South that are now getting hit by climate change, rising sea levels, but they don't have the infrastructure or the resources to really get out of this trap in a sense. So in a way, you need to be able to use climate reparations or something like it as kind of a systemic approach to at least getting resources and infrastructure to places that need it so that you don't see a complete climate collapse that leads to just instability everywhere. And I actually have a longer episode on this back in the day on this same podcast. I think it was like September 2022. So check it out. But I think I think climate reparations is not that radical of an idea when you think about it because it just it just seems like we if we don't do that, we're just going to see a massive destabilization caused by unrest, migration, chaos, civil war. And we're already seeing that in a sense. And I think it's time we need creative solutions and not just wealthy countries meeting in Dubai to find a consensus while ignoring some groups that oppose it. All right, moving on to the topic that I have been increasingly dreading talking about because it's just such a disaster. The United Nations has demanded and voted to demand an immediate ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. This is as Joe Biden is warning Israel that it's losing international or sorry, international support because of its indiscriminate bombing of civilians in its war against Hamas militants. To add some numbers to this, the Guardian writes here, the health ministry in Gaza said deaths in the two months long war had topped 18,000 including civilians and Hamas fighters. At the same time, Israel has announced that two senior commanders and seven other soldiers had been killed by Hamas in a complex ambush in the Gaza City suburbs. And this is at the same time where you're finding troubling reports from, from, from the IDF itself that talks about how nearly one-fifth of Israeli soldiers killed in Gaza died due to friendly fire and other preventable accidents. So I'm saying all this to basically just paint a picture that it's a just a growing mess. We are also seeing some of the worst flooding caused by heavy rains, and they have lashed Gaza, washing out these makeshift tents that people have had to, like hundreds of thousands are living in, flooding some of the areas. You're getting waterborne diseases. I saw over 100,000 people have very severe diarrhea. Most people are not drinking even the bare minimum of water per day. Basically, if they get any aid supplies into Gaza, people are fighting for it. There are worries about probably the rise of warlords as the instability continues that control resources. 
it's 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 very very not good and at the same time it does look like gaza could be on the brink of collapse and i mean we are seeing we are seeing diseases that i didn't even know were possible and the bbc had a headline that talks about how you're getting bombs from the sky and disease from the ground and you're seeing like hepatitis sorry not hepatitis hepatitis from water you're seeing dehydration you are seeing as i said diarrhea you are seeing cholera you are just seeing the growth of diseases where you're looking at a substantial majority of the population still there has some illness or another and i would argue the reason why they're calling for this ceasefire demanding it is because just a shit ton of people are going to die and they do need to get aid into there because right now it's just impossible to get aid into there I was watching an interview on the BBC with a journalist who just got back from the Gaza area, and he was talking about how the idea of there are no safe areas is very true, and he, you know he talked about fearing for his life many times, and it, it's a complete disaster. And the problem here is that, as Biden said, Israel is losing sympathy around the world, and I mean, some would argue rightfully so. I mean, the use of phosphorus gas being now reported in, what is it, southern Lebanon, which if it's knowingly or indiscriminately used and civilians are hurt is a war crime. And I mean, I, I think there just needs to be some conversation about holding some of the more extreme elements here that do want to just continue and continuously indiscriminately bomb these places. They, they do need to be held accountable here. And the, the sad thing is, is that this is bad for the Israeli cause, which I completely support. This is bad for the existence of Israel, which I support. But again, this is what happens when you have a far-right regime trying to maintain power, maintaining power, because they need this war to continue. Netanyahu needs this war to continue, and it is getting pretty damn ugly. Now, back to the ceasefire for a moment. It, it is interesting because some of the, so, well, okay, let's first get to the country, a few of the countries that voted against the resolution. By the way, 193 countries voted in the UN General Assembly, 153 countries voted in favor, 23 abstained. And also, where is it here? There were countries that voted against the resolution, including the Czech Republic, Austria, Guatemala, Israel, Liberia, Micronesia, Nauru, Papua New Guinea, Paraguay, and the United States. So obviously Israel and the United States are going to vote against it. Again, one of the reasons why the Biden administration is coming under fire. No surprise there. But then also you had countries like Britain, or the United Kingdom, I guess you could say, abstain. You also had Argentina abstain, Bulgaria, Italy, Hungary, Lithuania, Georgia, the Netherlands, Romania... Panama, Palau, Ukraine, Slovakia, South Sudan, Uruguay, Cabo Verde, Cameroon, just to name some. And then on the other side of it, though, some prominent U.S. allies voted in favor of the ceasefire. And this includes Canada, Australia, Japan. They'd previously abstained. And that's why this is kind of big. And I think that's why Biden is warning the tides are shifting, you guys. Like, we need to we need to figure something out here because, look, Canada, Australia, and Japan previously abstained. 
but they were among, according to the Washington Post, 30 countries that switched their position. You had a lot of Asian countries like South Korea and India, and they voted in favor of the latest resolution. Um, you also had some countries, sorry, that was, that was just an exhale of exhaustion with all of this, but you also had countries like Bolivia, which, I mean, Bolivia is a crazy country, but it cut ties with Israel. You also had Chile and Colombia recall their ambassadors. If I was, if I was Netanyahu, I mean, maybe he doesn't care because he's in self-preservation mode, but if I was the Israeli government right now, I would think about the future. If I was the United States, I would think about our future and our role in the world and the weight that we have as a diplomatic and as a soft power force in the world. Because right now, we are seeing most of the world say, enough is enough here. We need a ceasefire. And, you know, as the United States constantly says, it's a moral battle in Ukraine. We need to stop Putin. And as we say, we need to stand with Taiwan if China invades, it's hard for us to talk about moral battles for good when we are voting against a ceasefire so we can at least get humanitarian aid into Gaza. And so I think we need to, I think Israel and the United States, but the United States is, is more likely to change its position right now. It does need to look hard about this right now because domestically, I don't think most Americans like what they're seeing and the world is saying enough is enough. And I've, I've laid out the case against the ceasefire before, and I think some of that still holds true, is that it just means it gives more time for Hamas to rearm, rebuild, and attack again. Hamas leaders have done interviews out of their poshy hotels in, in Qatar talking about how they will keep doing this again and again. And th that, that, of course, is going to happen. But again, Israel is a democracy. It is considered an open and free society. It has better weapons. It has the support of more countries than Hamas does. And this is the conundrum that it's in, is that it can win. It can win this by eradicating Gaza. It can win this by wiping out the Palestinian people from the Strip. But it will lose the moral argument here if it does so. And that is why I think the United States does need to be more direct with the Israeli government here and say, we're losing support. We're losing the moral argument. Hamas wants us to lose the moral argument. Hamas is evil. It's a terrorist group. But, but we're walking into their trap. We're walking into their propaganda trap. We're walking into their moral quagmire. That's what they want us to do. And we're falling for it. So I think, I think it's just time to think very long and hard about what's happening here. And I, I, I think the Biden administration has done more than it's been given credit for, no doubt. But sometimes enough isn't enough. And I think in this case, that is it. So anyways, uh, tomorrow we'll probably talk about the Federal Reserve, what it means that they are not increasing or decreasing interest, rate, right, interest rates right now. What does that mean about the economy? I think that's probably a sign of not good news for the economy. But we'll talk about that more tomorrow. I got to get out of here. It's getting kind of late. I got to relax a little bit because all the, all the news is not great right now. So anyways, have a great night. We'll be back. And uh, just be safe and sane and, you know, enjoy what you can. You know, life is, life is what it is. And also watch Leave the World Behind if you can. Pretty good movie. I think some people expected more action. But it's an interesting look at how to 
topple a regime, a democracy from the inside. Very dark, very good. Anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. I'll be back with a better mic. See ya.